morning, if you will, and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Our text is verse 9 through 17. This morning will be part 2 of the psalm of the Pharisee, or not the psalm, but the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And let's ask the Lord's blessing and enlightenment. Let's pray. Now, Father, we come and ask for your blessing, for your enlightenment, for your divine instruction, Lord, that not only would we hear with our natural ears, but that we would hear spiritually your word, that your spirit would come powerfully working this word, this doctrine, this faith into our hearts, Lord, that we might be encouraged and strengthened, that our sanctification would be advanced, Lord, due to your attendance to your word, love and mercy toward us, Lord, bless each one here. And Father, if there is here this morning a sluggish heart, a dead heart, Lord, a heart that just needs encouragement, take thy word and use it, Lord, to bring those into your blessed kingdom for the first time and to take those who are in your kingdom, edify them, build them up, strengthen them, O Lord, but bring us all to that glorious day whereby we might receive the promise of our inheritance. We pray all of this in Christ's holy, precious name. Amen. And beloved, I want to begin reading at verse 9. And he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But this tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. And I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them saying, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter at all. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, this morning I will continue to open up that doctrine of 
that nature of true righteousness versus self-righteousness and even the contempt that flows from that self-righteousness. Last week, we were able to look properly at the parable, at its divisions, and determine that it's a comparison of those two things, what true righteousness is compared to self-righteousness. And we are also told, and it's a great blessing for us to have this revealed to us there in verse 9, that the reason Jesus told this parable was that there were people in his company that trusted in themselves and had a very contemptuous view of others. And that's the reason Jesus saw fit to teach this parable. Now, we should always be willing to look at passages like this, use and make use of them. That is, we shouldn't just quickly dismiss a text like this as if we ourselves don't struggle with self-righteousness or that there's no possible way that we could be guilty of self-righteousness. I I think even that thought alone, that is, there's no possible way that I could suffer from self-righteousness could be a fruit of self-righteousness. It's something that the Pharisee displayed and we'll look at that he had an extreme confidence in himself that he should not have had. And we see that. No, we are to look at this text of scripture like a mirror. And this is something that James taught us in his epistle. That we were to look at this text like a mirror and examine what we see in us. And if we do detect even a small speck of self-righteousness that we would kill it with the spirit and the word and repentance, that we would not allow it to thrive and to grow and to contaminate other areas of our lives, but that we would bless the name of God that we have been able to detect such a powerful sin early. Now, brothers and sisters, when we begin looking at this Pharisee, this religious expert, it is rather shocking that someone so well-trained, someone so well accustomed to the word of God could suffer from such a great sin. And we have to ask ourselves, how does that happen? How does someone like this Pharisee, or the school of the Pharisees, how do they fall into such a grievous sin and something that seems so obvious from the outside looking in? And I think that's where, that's where I want to spend the most of our time Uh, This morning, I really want to help us answer that question. I don't want us to just pass over the opportunity for us to consider seriously, how does this religious expert fall into such delusion? 
How does he become so deceived about himself? How does he become so deceived about his relationship with God? How does that happen? Particularly when you're surrounded with religious things, when you're surrounded with the things of God, right? The word, he had the word, he had commentaries, he had the temple, he had the priesthood, he had the sacrifices, he had the judicial law. I mean, is that Paul stated that according to Romans 2, what does Paul say? He says, you know, they had all the advantages, the Jews. They had all of these advantages. Yet how did he miss it? How did so many of the Pharisees miss it? Well, I guess a couple of things to just bring out again as we set the stage to discuss that those possibilities that led him to such delusion is we see it's clear from the parable that he certainly didn't see his own plight. His prayer indicates he's self-centered. He's audacious, if you will, before God. He, he almost is asking God to praise him for his goodness. And that's what the prayer sounds like, doesn't it? Where he says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Swindlers, unjust men, adulterers, and, and not like this tax collector. He seems to be calling upon God as he says, look, Lord, I fast twice a week. I tithe from everything that I have. You are very, very blessed to have me in your company. And there are people like that. He was one of these people. Remember, we dealt with that variant in the original language that could possibly be interpreted in verse 11, that the Pharisee stood and was praying. It could be interpreted that the Pharisee takes his stand, making a show of it, and prayed. That his purpose in taking the stand was that he might be recognized that he might in some way be admired or uh, applauded later on uh, by his prayer, others walking up to him and thanking him for such a great prayer and thanking him for being such a great example of virtue and morality. I think that's a very possible interpretation. In fact, I, I think that's the strength of the interpretation. It's the comparison that Jesus is setting before these self-righteous listeners of his and he is setting them before his listeners to clearly be able to make the distinctions that they need to make. That's the purpose of it, right? So we know he was self-centered. We know that he had no problem comparing himself with others. He, had, he was willing to do that. He had no problem. I mean, again, it shows that what I want you to see is it really demonstrated the depth of his delusion. The depth of the delusion. We're not just talking about something minor here. We're talking about something that has fully enveloped his life. 
something that has taken him over. That this is the air, the attitude that he walks around with. And what we don't see in his prayer is repentance. We don't see repentance. We don't find any repentance, do we, brothers and sisters? No, I mean, according to the story, I mean, he ends his prayer with, I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all that I have. You are blessed to have me. I mean, that's the insinuation. Well, why do we not see repentance? Well, I think we can easily determine, can't we, that the the depth of his delusion is also encapsulated by the fact that he doesn't repent of any sin because he doesn't recognize any sin in himself that he needs to repent of. Now let that sink in. He doesn't recognize sin in himself. Our confession of faith is helpful. It tells us that this repentance unto life is out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of one's sins. That we confess them because they are dirty, because they are sinful, and because they are filthy in the sight of a holy God. He doesn't have that passion about his sins. He doesn't have that, that understanding that he is a sinner. Remember, in closing last week, I mentioned that he was ignorant of the law of God. He didn't understand it, even though he was an expert in the law, considered to be an expert in the law, but not really the law of God. He was an expert in the modified law of God, okay? Now, what do I mean by the modified law of God? Well, we'll turn to a passage in a minute. I'm gonna mention it now. What well, were the... Pharisees had altered and changed and accommodated their own sins with the law of God. They changed it up so that they might not fall under conviction or that the law would not condemn them. And Jesus condemns them in several places of scriptures for doing that. And he tells them, he says, you've replaced the word of God with your traditions and so they really weren't experts in the law of God proper. Uh, they were more experts in the law of God adulterated and modified to meet their sinful purposes. Uh, Matthew 19, one of the things that Jesus brings up is how they, uh, how in God's law, uh, the older sibling, the, typically the male, would be given a double inheritance. And it wasn't because he was special. 
the double inheritance was because the responsibility normally of caring for the aged parents would fall upon the oldest. And in God's law, there was an accommodation financially for that. He would receive a double portion of inheritance so that he would have the economic means of caring for the parents in their old age. It wasn't because they was more loved or special in any way. And of course, the Pharisees adulterated that commandment. They would take that double portion of inheritance and modified it to where they could vow it to the temple, so to speak, and dedicate it to God and never spend it on their parents. And they would spend it for religious uses and things that they desired to spend it on and they would never take up their responsibility to love their aged parents and care for them. And they cloaked it in this, well, religious garb, right? This religious clothing saying, oh, we are, we are, Honestly, what they were saying at that point, you go and read this for yourselves. You know, we're really too spiritual to take care of our parents. We want to take care of God and the things of God. How hypocritical. What, what abominations when God's people don't bear up under their responsibilities, even with their families, to take care of them, to meet these needs. And, 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 and notice how they separated this world from the spiritual life, so to speak. That brothers and sisters, when we do the things that God's called us to do, we are doing spiritual things. Let's revisit our call to worship. I have been attempting to use the call to worship a text, a psalm that would help us in some way support the message, at least the theme of the message. But notice, even in Psalm 15, it's a description of a citizen of Zion, this heavenly kingdom. And, and notice how verse one, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? The one who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth, where? In his heart. Now, all of these are a description. They're not just the outward things that, that make someone righteous. This is not someone who has worked their way into being a citizen of the kingdom of God. No, this is the fruit of one who is a citizen of the kingdom of God. And what will we find them doing in this psalm? Taking care of all of their outward earthly responsibilities. I don't think I need to go further with that. I think it's pretty self-explanatory that brothers and sisters, you are making a terrible mistake if you think that you can live one way on earth and then somehow another way spiritually and those two are never to meet. That's not the case. You are a heavenly earthly being and your heavenly citizenship gives you and obligates you to grace duties. 
Now, I say grace duties because I want all of you to know and understand that it doesn't flow out of your own strength. It flows out of the grace of God that has worked in your heart. The reformers called these evangelical graces or evangelical commandments or evangelical truths. And the reason they used the word evangelical because what they were highlighting is these, these are the, these, the way we live, the way we talk, the way we think, the, the, the way our habits, all of these things. These are the fruits of the gospel change in a person's life. They're evangelical meaning they came after the the covenant of works. These evangelical duties came after the covenant of works, after the fall of Adam, after the Lord establishes this covenant of grace in the garden with Adam and Eve, clothing them in animal skins and giving them the promise of a coming redeemer. He, they then begin having these evangelical duties that they didn't have before in the covenant of works, such as sacrifice. There were no sacrifices in the covenant of works. Why? Well, there was no sin. There was no sin to atone for in the covenant of works. Remember, Adam was a righteous creature, made upright and whole before God. He had no need to offer sacrifices because there was no sin to atone for. Now, brothers and sisters, let us take note of these things as we consider what is righteous before God and what is self-righteous before God. Well, let's look at this point. I want to give you this. So we looked at the Pharisee's self-righteousness in its display. Let's look at this false confidence that he had. And I I really want to hone in on this assurance, this false assurance. And where do I find it in the text? Well, if you look with me, where Jesus says that the the, the tax collector, um, or verse 14, I tell you that this man, that's the tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the other. Now, what I want to do is compare that statement to the Pharisee. See, the Pharisee left the temple fully assured of himself. That, assured of what? That he is in favor with God. That he has a right standing with God. That he has God's blessing. That he is one of God's children. But that Jesus tells us that only the tax collector left justified. Not the Pharisee. And I'm sure that even the tax collector, I'm sure his assurance well, waxed and waned a little bit, didn't it? And I'll address that when I deal with the tax collector proper. But not 
the Pharisee. I'm pretty sure he left the temple gloating, just absolutely thrilled with himself that he was able to go up to the temple, that he was able to demonstrate and, and to be an example for all of these other people around him what righteousness looks like. And yet, brothers and sisters, the sad reality is he walked away with a false assurance. He walked away believing that he was in favor with God and justified, and he was not. He goes home not knowing that if God was going to call his spirit that night, that he would go straight to hell. Just allow that to seep in a little bit. For him to stand before a holy God and be told, I don't know you would have staggered him. What do you mean? You could hear the debate. You could hear the defense. But Lord, did we prophesy in your name? Lord, didn't we do great religious works in your name? I never knew you. The confession of faith, again, chapter 18 is a, the chapter written on assurance. I encourage it. I, I, I ask you to take time to read that on your own. But listen to what it says. It says, on assurance of salvation, although hypocrites... And other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and the estate of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish. Do you know? that the strength of some people's hypocrisy and deception will last all the way until they stand before God. That they will take their last breath in this world believing that they are right with God and they are not. Now what I don't want you to do is get, well, what do we do? Well, you know what to do. We talk about the gospel all the time, don't we? We talk about faith. We talk about repentance. We talk about trust. We talk about living for God. We talk about loving God. And, and, and yet that's the answer to that question you have in your mind. But brothers and sisters, we must deal with and we must faithfully deal with this, this idea, am I, do I have an assurance that's based upon evangelical grace and mercy and not in my own works? That my works are the fruit, they're the result of God's spirit working the word of God in my life, building up in me faith, hope, and love in him. 
that these things are done in his name for his glory, for his purpose, and I am but thy blessed servant, unworthy, unworthy. That's what I'm talking about. Self-delusion, brothers and sisters, is a real thing. We can be deluded. We can be convinced that we're right and we're totally wrong. Like the Pharisee. Mark this down in your notes. Deuteronomy 29, 19. Look at the context there later. But I want to just read the verse And it shall come to pass, this is in that section of Deuteronomy where the Lord is rehearsing the covenant obligations and responsibilities to those about to enter into the promised land. And he says, and it it can't come to pass that when he, he's talking about this person that is delusional. That's the he. When he hears the words of this curse, what is this curse spoken of of Deuteronomy 29? It's what, Jesus, it's what Jesus speaks in the Old Covenant by saying, if you don't live by these things, you shall die. If you don't perform these obligations and these duties by my grace, by a circumcised heart, you shall die. That's the curse. But notice what this one says, this person. So he hears these things about that, and he says this, that he may bless himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, though I walk in the imagination of my heart to add drunkenness to thirst. What, what Jesus, what, what Deuteronomy 29, 19 is speaking of is that even among the cursings of God, that this will come upon you if, if you don't perform these things by my spirit and in the power of a circumcised, gracious, filled heart. He says, he just sits there and goes, oh, that don't apply to me. That doesn't mean, uh, no, I don't know about judgment. If we're judged, that's your fault. That's, y'all, y'all are bad people. And he's talking about the delusion of this person. And he's recognizing that there are people like this. There are people that sit in this covenant environment, in the, in the blessings of the covenant. And we, even when they hear the cursings of the covenant, they say, That's them. that doesn't apply to me. I'm good. I have nothing to fear. And as Moses said, he lives by the imagination of his own heart. It's not real. It's fabricated. It's made up. It's a mist with no substance whatsoever. So what fosters this delusion? What breeds it? Well, I mean, there are, I think primarily, I've already touched on how this self-delusion exists. It exists in each one of us because of our fallenness. Now, it's naturally in every man, every man, every man, every woman. It's a blindness that comes with being in Adam and being guilty, sharing in that guilt with him who has broken that covenant. We are fallen in Adam and we are totally incapable of, of seeing, understanding, desiring, and 
well, performing anything that God wants of us. It's called spiritual deadness. Paul says this in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, that we were all dead in trespasses and sin. That was, that's how we come into this world, spiritually dead. Now, he's not talking about physical death. It's an analogy. It's a metaphor. He's using the metaphor of dead to help us understand that we can't do anything to please and serve God, just like a dead man can't do anything. And we should get the picture easily enough. There is certainly that deadness of sin also leads to a spiritual blindness. Blindness. Men don't know what they don't know spiritually because they're blind. Paul says they grope around in darkness. Jesus warned us of, and his disciples, of the blind leading the blind. What happens to them? They both fall into the pit. Look at Matthew chapter 15. I'm going to read, it's going to be a long section. I'm going to start in verse 1. I think you will find several useful things uh, to take notes about as I read through the text and make some application, but it's pretty self-explanatory because I've set the stage, I think, rather nicely for us to see it. Verse 1, some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But I say to you, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever you have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, but in vain do they worship me. And we can see that that's exactly the description of the Pharisee. He's worshiping God in vain. There's no value to it whatsoever. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And after Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. When the disciples came to him and said, do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? And he said, and, and he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be uprooted 
Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Now, brothers and sisters, it's, it, it's telling one thing that Jesus says, leave them alone. I mean, have nothing to do with them. Don't listen to them. Don't debate with them. They're blind. They don't even know what they don't know. And the things they do know are not of God. They are the traditions of elders. They're their twisted accommodations of the word of God. Now, that certainly needs and bears some attention because when we find all of these these, um, Christian sects, the Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons, and all these other different branches and varieties of religion and all under this cloak of, well, Christianity, we need to understand they're blind. And the people that get sucked up into those things are spiritually dead and blind. And if they, just say they are a Christian, they won't stay there. Because it'll constantly be offensive to the Holy Spirit to hear such false teaching. It would constantly be offensive to the Spirit of God in them. The Spirit of God in them would be constantly bearing witness to this false doctrine. And it wouldn't be pleasing to God. And they would move on if they are true children of of God. But he says they are blind. They are spiritually blind. They they have no spiritual substance to them because they're blind men. They don't see it. They don't perceive it. They don't understand it. You have to perceive it first, right? Before you can even bring understanding and have knowledge, you have to first perceive it. And what Jesus is saying is they don't even get to step one, They don't even perceive their own plight. So therefore, they don't have knowledge or certainly they don't have understanding. Leave them alone. Stay away from them. Have nothing to do with them. And my emphasis at this point is that though they are spiritually blind like this Pharisee, you don't have anything to do. Don't follow them. Don't sit under someone who is spiritually blind, someone who is not regenerated, someone who is not a Christian, someone who doesn't bear the fruit, those evangelical truths of Christianity. And when we find these evangelical pastors around our area, um, I mean, I... I'm, trying to th- I'm actually trying to think of a few names and they s- escape my mind at this point. But well, you know what you find out? Over time, their true self comes out. They seem to start very evangelical. And why is that important to start in the strength of, well, what is evangelical? Because they gather people, professing believers. But over time, what seems to come out in their teaching? Fancy things. Untraditional things. Unorthodox things, right? 
There's an interesting note in the parable. If you turn back there with me, look at verse 9. I want to highlight the word trusted if you have the New American Standard. It says, and he told this parable to some who trusted. Now, this word is interesting because this word bears out this idea of persuasion. They, have, they were persuaded. They were persuaded that they were righteous. They were persuaded that they were right before God, that they had favor for God. They had been persuaded that they were in, well, they were God's children. Now that brings attention to my second point. Number one, they're spiritually blind and they're easily persuaded. Blind people love fancy things. Blind professing Christians love bells and whistles and new teaching. Why do you think the internet's full of stuff like that? Why do you think the internet's full of those little emails that go out and go, we finally understand the Bible for the first time? As if somehow, well, for thousands of years, God's people have just been aimless. Be careful of stuff like that. It's garbage. The second point that we must make is that false teaching led to this. Not only were they spiritually blind and they gravitated to the things that interested them, inward pull to sin, we all have that, don't we? And unless God converts us and God gives us a new heart and God gives us faith and the gift of repentance, we will be subject to these things. Well, these mistakes, right? These, uh, these grievous actions. And then false teaching played a role in this. Remember what I read in, in, in chapter 15 of Matthew, how they twisted the word of God. They were persuaded by the twisting of God's word that they were righteous. That all God required of them were these external things. Now, they could have read the Bible for themselves. They could have read all throughout the scriptures about how God wants a changed heart. We sang from Psalm 51 this morning. Maybe you picked up on some of those verses, but if you will, turn there in your Bibles. Again, we know that, well, I think most of us know that this is a psalm of repentance. This is sort of the pinnacle of, of David writing psalms related to his repentance and, and turning back to God. And look at what he says in verse 15. He says, O oh Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. Now, where does, where does true praise come from? The heart right? For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. And you are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Now we could even add this in here that the, sac that the true sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. God had required sacrifices. That's not what David's saying. 
But if you don't give these sacrifices with the heart that must accompany it, it's for nothing. Brothers and sisters, sacrifices were part of the old covenant worship. If you come to church and you go through all the emotions without a heart of contrition, a heart of adoration, a heart of thanksgiving, it does you no good. It does you no good. What does the psalmist say? He says, God doesn't despise the heart worship, which means he despises the other worship. Now listen to me, my beloved brothers and sisters. This requires you and I to come to every Lord's Day prepared. Seeking God's face before we ever walk in this building that, oh God, may I have a right heart before you, oh Lord. Make my heart yours. Lord, I am thy unprofitable servant. Grant me contrition. Give me an odiousness. Give me an offense, Lord, of my sins. Show me how I need to hate my own sins. Let me go into worship with my brothers and sisters. And Lord, let me not look down upon them, but let me look at myself. And come, O oh Lord, and bless me with yourself. What does David say in this psalm? Lord, create in me, verse 10, a, a, a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Isn't that the heart of worship? The heart of worship is not the formalities. And I'm not saying the formalities are unimportant. You have to have some type of formality the order and structure. But, but the formality is not what brings us favor, is it? It's God. If the formality aids us in coming before God rightly, amen. If it doesn't, we need to do away with it. Because the point of us gathering for biblical, godly, Spirit-filled worship is being in his presence. He in ours and we in his. You put down in your notes Matthew 23 and go back and read that in your own devotions and you'll see how our Lord uh, just emasculates, if you will, their doctrine and their abusing and abuse of God's word. So we see personal blindness, false teaching that fosters such a confidence that shouldn't be had. And then thirdly, a misplaced hope in the externals of God. When and we see this in John 8 and... Uh, 
you would turn to John 8. When Jesus seems to have offended them, and by, look at verse 39, he says, And they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. That means do the same evangelical works Abraham did. That is, that work that was performed from a heart that had been changed by God's grace. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we are born, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have uh, not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. And why do you not understand what I am saying? Well, it is not because you cannot hear, for it is because you cannot hear my word. And you are of your father, the devil. And I'm just going to stop there. We cannot put too much focus upon our heritage. Whether it's Presbyterian, whether it's familial. All of my families are Christians. We must, each one of us, Find our place before God alone. And though you may have a rich Scottish Presbyterian heritage, though you may have a rich Christian heritage, though you may have a, a, a solid family heritage where your parents are Christians and your grandparents were Christians and your great-grandparents were Christians, pastors, deacons, elders, whatever the case may be, you cannot make the same mistake and misplace your trust in that to get you to heaven and make you righteous. As good as those things are, they will not buy your way into heaven and they do not buy God's favor. You, each of us, are fallen in Adam and must seek Christ on our own way in our own way, coming before him. Two things by way of closing. You might even think that zeal, I'm just going to throw this out there, that you may be very zealous for the things of religion, for the things of God. Romans 10, Paul tells us, Zeal can be performed without true knowledge. You can want to evangelize. You can want to save the whole world to Jesus and you yourself go straight to hell. Why do you want to do those things? Why do you want to come to worship? Why do you want the church to grow? Why do you want the gospel to be preached from this pulpit? Why is it important for you that the pastor be faithful? Why is it important to you that the elders be faithful? Why is it important to you that our deacons are faithful? Why is it important to you that we maintain orthodox standards? Why is that important? Well, there can only be one ultimate answer. Many subordinate, one ultimate. 
and that is to glorify God. And through that glorying of God in our obedience, we enjoy him. And our happiness greatly increases. So two things in closing. First, brothers and sisters, anyone can suffer from self-righteousness. Everyone in church can be self-righteous. There's not a person that's immune to it, it's my point. So please examine yourself. And secondly, when there is false or when there is self-righteousness, hypocrisy is not far behind, contempt is not far behind as we see in the parable, and false assurance is not far behind. Examine these things. Look at them. Mull them over. Because brothers and sisters, I would not want any one of us to leave this earth tonight and be shocked and appalled that we did not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Now, Father, Almighty God, thank you for the opportunity this morning to open up this parable even further. You have given us so many things to see and to look at and to consider. And I pray, O Lord, that we would by your spirit contemplate and meditate and consider these things. That the Holy Spirit would make application to our hearts, to our lives. That we would not be guilty of this grievous sin of self-righteousness, self-trust. That our persuasion of our righteousness would be that flowing from and out of the gospel, the grace of God, the true teaching and interpretation of the word of God. That we would not rest in our own works. We know that they are nothing. But that we would rest solely upon the work of Christ and that he alone even sanctifies our deeds, and all of our obedience. Now, Father, do bless us. Bless us even as we begin to prepare ourselves to come and partake of the Lord's Supper, this communion with Christ. Lord, we pray that you would sanctify these elements. We pray that you would set apart this bread and wine from their ordinary and most common use to a very special religious use where we might feast upon the body and the blood of Jesus our Lord. We rest in him alone, by faith alone, in grace alone. We pray all of this in his name, amen.